If you turn in your Bible, we're going to be in the book of Matthew, uh, of course. We're taking time and walking through the Gospel of Matthew. We will probably be going through the Gospel of Matthew in, for the next, I don't know, decade or two. And uh, it's, it, it, it takes a while. And so, uh, but we're looking at Matthew chapter 5. And uh, we're going to read the first 12 verses and uh, this is exciting. We're, we're, gonna, we're embarking on a journey over the next few weeks uh, through the most famous sermon ever preached, and that is the Sermon on the Mount, uh, of course, preached by Jesus. And so this is how it begins. We read the first couple verses last week, but to revisit that, and we'll go through verse 12. Here we go. Sermon on the Mount. Uh, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, he His disciples came to him, he opened his mouth, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Uh, This is the way that Jesus begins the famous Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. Uh, the Beatitudes are these inspirational and, and aspirational uh, a list of qualities that, that, that are uh, meant to be part of a believer's life, and they are the subject of countless books, uh, countless sermons throughout the years. I mentioned last week I was looking through some funny names of, of Sermon on the Mount, or Beatitude sermons, and one I found that was called the Bedatitudes. Eight Ways to Be a, a, a Great Christian Dad, and uh, I thought that was fun and clever. Uh, but what he's doing, it, Jesus is starting this, this, uh, this sermon by uh, painting a picture of these incredible goals that are set before us, goals that we're meant to desire to reach. And then he also goes into a bit of a description of the types of people, the kinds of people who reach these goals, the kinds of people who can make these things happen. And, and, and this conversation should, should appeal to all of us. We're all very goal-oriented. Everyone aspires to be more. Uh, within all of us is that, that hunger to be, to be more, to do more, to a, achieve more, to become more, to acquire more. Uh, we, we sort of all crave that uh, to, to a point where we can even become a little bit competitive, where if other people are advancing and achieving, uh, oftentimes we feel self-conscious, maybe even a little jealous, maybe a little uh, bitter. Uh, I remember as a young man uh, back in the uh, 80s growing up, the the, the Karate Kid was released in motion pictures in 1984, followed by a couple of sequels, Ralph Macchio, Pat Morita, one of the greatest movie franchises ever in my personal opinion. They now have Cobra Kai, the series, which is so cool. 
And, uh, but there was a phenomenon that happened in the 80s where karate, martial arts, ninjas were everywhere. It was like the coolest thing ever. And, uh, and so I would, I, I think it was about third grade, there was a kid in my class, and uh, his name was David. And uh, David was uh, in karate, took karate, and he had a, he, he'd brag about his, whatever it was, magenta belt or whatever he had, uh, light green belt, who knows what he had. He had a belt. And uh, it was obnoxious. And David was one of those braggarts that would always kind of tell you about all the stuff he has and everything. And he didn't have a lot of friends because that's, that can be a little bit annoying. So he didn't really hang out with a lot of kids. But he just kind of run up into your friend group and start bragging about how much better he is. So one day, I just had had it. And uh, I was like, enough already. And so my third grade, uh, this is my decision making. I said to David, right to his face, oh, you got a magenta belt? I got a black belt. He's like, no, you don't. I said, listen, man, I'm like a certified ninja. I have my ninja certification. I can do CPR and I can kill you with a pencil, okay? This is, this is impressive. And so I did the crane, did the standard fare, and he's like, he's like, you're not it. Come on, man. And I said, no, 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 I'm a black belt. So I just basically built this whole web of lies about my karate prowess and how talented and amazing I was. And the whole thing was to counteract him, to shut him up. I was so tired of him bragging about how great he was and how much he had accomplished that I just started uh, making up my own story. Well, anyway, I didn't see this thing through and uh, did not see this one coming, but we had uh, PTA meetings back then, which uh, parents would come in, which was every child's worst nightmare to have their worlds collide, their parents meet their teacher, oh God, please come quickly. Uh, so my mom comes, and I, I didn't think much of it. So she's nonchalantly uh, talking to another mom, and it just so happens of all the moms in all the world, she has to talk to David's mom. And David's, like, uh, David's mom is like, hey, congratulations. Your son Chris is a black belt in karate. That is quite impressive. And my mom's like, no, he's not. David's mom proceeds to argue with my mom like she's wrong and she has no idea that I'm out there moonlighting taking karate lessons with Pat Morita and has no idea that I'm waxing on, waxing off and, and I, I'm a black belt. She's like, no, 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 he is. And my mom's like, you are sadly mistaken. My, my son is not a black belt in anything. He's certainly not a black belt in cleaning his room. So uh, right then, to find out your child, your beloved son, is a complete and total liar and fraud. I think my mom left the PTA meeting at that moment, and she uh, went around the corner, found me playing on the playground or whatever, enjoying my childhood, grabbed me by my face, just grabbed me by the face, threw me into the Buick, and climbed in. She's like, oh, you're a black belt, huh? And this is, I'm quoting her, I'll give you a black belt. She took the belt off the car engine. No, she didn't. Um, so uh, we, 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 had, uh, we met a, a, a lady last week, and I'd been working with her through the event space, and they were coming in for an event after church Sunday. And uh, she proceeded to tell my parents, my parents were still here, and she said, You're, you've done a great job. Your son is amazing. And they were, they, were, they were talking about how great I am. And I was just like, mm-hmm, go on. 
And uh, my mom's like, yeah, uh, that's because I whooped him. <laughs> I was like, you don't say that to strangers, mom. Anyway, so, uh, and then, then she's like, yeah, me too. <laughs> I did that too. So, uh, but I, I, uh, I that, that's, the, that's the pressure inside of us, that we're dealing in a world that's very competitive. Everybody wants to become more, do more, achieve more. And so it creates, uh, it can create some insecurity, some vulnerability, because we all aspire to be more than we are. Now, now if you take a closer look at the Beatitudes, um, you, if you take a closer look, these are not necessarily the types of goals that one would normally seek. And uh, we, we, we read this in general, like God's goal setting for us, God's telling us about the types of people who can achieve these goals. But then upon closer examination, you start realizing these goals are not your standard, hey, if you just dial it up and do a little bit better, you can achieve more for yourself. These aren't like self-help inspirational quotes. Uh, These are not your typical TED Talks. Uh, If you're going to go through a a, a self-help seminar and personal growth seminar, these are not the types of things that you would probably put on your vision board and start, and start working out in your own life. These are, um, these are really different types of goals. It's, an, it's a combination of these underrated, more immediate things like comfort, satisfaction, despite what the Rolling Stones said, I can't get no. Here's Jesus saying, no, I'm, this, is, this is a goal that you need to be after. Mercy. In uh, these kind of more immediate human goals uh, partnered with or, or contrasted with more spiritual kind of eternity-oriented things, big picture things like receiving the kingdom of heaven or, or seeing God or, or as, it puts it, as Jesus puts it, a great reward in heaven. And so uh, what Jesus is doing, and this is a theme, and you're going to see this throughout the whole sermon, he, he establishes a, a tone uh, in these first few verses. And, and that tone, I would say, the theme, uh, a large theme of the Sermon on the Mount is, is this idea, misdirection. Jesus is preaching a sermon full of misdirection. You think he's going to zig and he zags. And so he's talking about extremely familiar topics, but he's going about them and he's reaching completely unexpected conclusions with these topics. And he starts with the goals. And so um, he's, he's doing his best to raise our perspective on being goal-oriented. That life is bigger than your job. That life is bigger than your kids' grades. That life is bigger than your next vacation. Now these are beautiful, important, wonderful things that are to be considered and should be celebrated and enjoyed and uh, I believe are gifts from God. But, but he's saying, hey, th- that's all great, but there's way bigger things at stake here. And so he goes on later on in the sermon to say, seek first the kingdom and, and my righteousness and all things will be taken care of. So basically, get this one right, the big thing right, and then the smaller things that are important to us will actually fall into place and they'll benefit from having the main thing as the main thing. And Jesus is establishing this is the main thing. As opposed to just kind of living in this place of the immediate and the temporal, it, uh, there's a great statement in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that says, 
the natural man does not understand or comprehend or wrap his mind around the things of, of God because they are spiritually appraised, which is a great statement. They are spiritually appraised. This is Jesus raising our perspective on actually what really matters in life. We can get very caught up and even captured by the immediate stuff, the temporal stuff that ultimately, at the end of time, does not matter at all. There's, uh, we are stepping into election season. <laughs> oh gosh, Chris is getting political. This is as political as I get. Stop getting so political. That's all I'm saying. Is, uh, we think that, hey, depending on who gets elected, uh, that's going uh, to be the future of my life. That's going to determine the quality of my existence. There is one king whose booty's on the throne, and it ain't any of these candidates. I'm just telling you. Life is so much bigger than this stuff. Now, I'm not saying that's completely inconsequential. I'm not saying that at all. All I'm saying is, let's put things in perspective. God is God. These people are not. That's what matters. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Guys, you've got to get your eyes above just the immediate and, uh, and the temporal. So, and then, this is the big misdirection. He continues that theme of mis- misdirection with a description of the types of people who achieve the goals that he describes. Now, if we were to fill in the blank and say, okay, let me tell you who is going to be the people, the types of people that can achieve these things you would start talking about the strong, the talented, the intelligent, the go-getters, the overachievers, the spiritually mature, the, uh, the, the people who have a great resume, the, the spiritually together. Not the riffraff, not the bottom-of-the-barrel people that snuck into this message. Uh, the very first thing Jesus does as he leaves, spoiler alert, Uh, the Sermon on the Mountain steps down from the mountain, he encounters a leper that was not supposed to be out amongst people in public. But he was because he was desperate for Jesus, and Jesus took time with him because these are the types of people that he came for. Not the together, the untogether. Not Not the spiritually advanced, but the bottom of the barrel people that that desperately need a savior. So he starts talking about the types of people that would achieve these goals and they are not at all what we would assume at all because we've been taught and conditioned and based on our own experiences in life that those people that got the job when we didn't were more qualified. The people that got the raise or the promotion or the role at work that we wanted, that we desperately wanted and they got it they stepped in front of us because they had more qualifications they were more educated they had they had more experience and so we were left kind of watching other people take those spots because they're more advanced and so that's the people we would assume would be the uh the 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 people achieving the goals that jesus is describing but jesus describes people who are nothing like that in fact these are just a few of the descriptions poor mournful, hungry, gentle peacekeepers. These are not, this is not describing the cool kids table. This is not describing the types of people that we aspire to be like. 
These are not the role models. They're not popular qualities. Who's aspiring to be hungry? Man, I just, please God, make me poor in spirit. That's not something that we aspire to. So we have this this stark contrast that Jesus is laying out. Because we know how the world works, and so on one side you have the value system of the world that is do better, try harder, be more competent, learn, grow. And, and, and with that comes a lot of pride. A lot of people, I've I, I got to be honest with you, I've talked to so many people in the context of spirituality that is filled, riddled with so much pride. Sorry, Chris, I can't come to your church because I don't believe in organized religion. I'm above that. I've graduated from organized religion. That is beneath me. I don't believe in organized religion. I said, well, I have good news for you. My church is neither religious nor is it organized. Welcome to the family. And then Jesus is talking to a a group of people who have been under the same rules for the entire life that has been all about spiritual advancement, moral authority, growing, becoming more better. And what he's saying is, hey, and this is his whole ministry, right? The least are the greatest. The last, they're first. It is not exa- it's not at all what you expect. Let's go through these descriptions real quick and, and, and give it a little bit more understanding. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit means spiritually humble. People who know they need a savior, who know that they are not self-sufficient spiritually. Blessed are those who mourn. Those are people that would be described as repentant. They, they mourn the fact that things aren't, for them and for the rest of the world, things aren't as they should be. Blessed are the gentle, or, or some translations say the meek. That would be humble in heart, in mind. Another definition would be restrained. Uh, they're, they're not putting themselves forward to be the point or the focus. They are uh, they're able to kind of take a back seat and say, I'm not, it's not about me. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. People that hunger and thirst for righteousness are people that crave something they don't have. These are people who understand and realize they cannot in and of themselves be righteous. Blessed are the merciful. That means people who walk and live extending mercy to other people in every situation. Blessed are the pure in heart. Those are people who have the right motivations, the right intentions, have the right drive on the inside of them. It's not just what they do, but why they do what they do is connected to something that is pure. The Bible says, who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? Those with clean hands, pure hearts. Blessed are the peacemakers. That means people who resist the urge to stay mad and hold grudges. Um, there, I, I am not a peacemaker. I think I am. I act like I am. But then I, I drive in traffic in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And there's people, uh, this, this happened, and I, I have to admit that I'm sorry. I always feel like the pulpit is my confessional. Um, 
I, my wife and I were driving at the same time as my daughter. And she, my daughter was in her car, and we were driving. And no, 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 my, daughter, my wife was with my daughter in her car. I was driving by myself, which makes this even worse. Um, I didn't have my wife there to be my, the Holy Spirit and guide me and correct my behavior. Uh, my, my daughter is a, is a new driver, and she's, she's very conscious of the speed limit. She's going to go the speed limit. People get mad at you when you go the speed limit. You, you're supposed to be going 20 miles over. So a, uh, someone in a, in a van gets right behind her and starts laying on their horn. Why well, swerve over to that lady and start laying on the horn? And then once my daughter goes forward a little bit, I cut that lady off so that she's behind me. And she's like, I'm going six. I, I, in that moment, I was like, I'll show you. I'll teach you. That is not being a peacemaker. Um, <laughs> that is being the angel of death. And uh, it's awful. I shouldn't do that. Now, the irony of how I've, I've heard the Beatitudes. You probably have to. I've read books about the Beatitudes. I've heard this preached five flagellion times. And the irony of how so many people interpret these verses is that Jesus is describing the, the, the kinds of people that, that, that he desires us to be. And so we want to get busy running to the front of the line to be the back of the line types of people that Jesus is talking about. Did you catch that? We are running to the front of the line to become the back of the line types of people that Jesus is talking about. This becomes a self-help goal that we're supposed to aspire to become greater lowly people. This, the result of that, this is the result of the cold, surgical, um, exacting way that we interpret Scripture. These, these verses and the, the whole Bible as a whole, we read them and we, we, we read the rest of the scriptures like this. It's, it's got to be prescriptive. Do this and you'll get that. We read everything prescript, as if it's a prescription for us to become better Christians. It's do this, get that. If we want to inherit the kingdom of heaven, if you want that, you got to get out there and be poor in spirit. If you want to be called a son or daughter of God, you better peacemake better. These scriptures will do one of two things, as all scripture will do one of two things. And and I want to, for a moment, say that the the our church. Family church will always, and this is not always a popular method of teaching, preaching, or exploration of the Bible, but we are committed to the process of always allowing Scripture and every message, every worship song, everything that we do here to turn us to Jesus, not turn us inward on ourselves. Now, what feels better and what's more popular in in the, the New Testament uh, it talks about this quite a bit, that this is not the popular approach to ministry or life. Fixing our eyes on Jesus is way less popular than making me the subject matter. 
But every scripture, including these, will either turn us to Jesus or turn us inward to ourselves. That will be the function of all scripture. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformist, um, he said this uh, about these very verses, the, the Beatitudes. And this is a very controversial statement that he made, but I think it's still quite true. He said this, the infernal Satan, that's a great way to start a sentence, isn't it? The infernal Satan, that lady were to ask me, Chris, why did you cut me off in traffic? I'd say, the infernal Satan has not found a single text in the Scriptures which has more shamefully perverted and made more error and false doctrine out of than just this one, which was by Christ, Christ himself ordered and appointed to neutralize false doctrine. This we may call the masterpiece of the devil. That's a... not mincing words there. That's, that's a serious statement. And... What Luther's claiming is not at all, uh, you probably gather this, that this sermon isn't directly from the heart of Jesus. It is. What he's describing is how common it is for us to be twisted and contorted, uh, for for these scriptures to be twisted and contorted into uh, a place of total humanism and uh, a humanistic approach towards life. Instead of being Christ-centered, I am Christ-centered, and now you've just given me more ammunition to take this bull by the horns and make a life that I want to, for it to be, and maybe God will give me the thumbs up after I create the existence that I want to create. It's humanism. Humanism is the enemy of faith. Faith and humanism are at complete and total opposites of the spectrum. And you can't mix. There's no mixture There's no clever balance of humanism and faith. It's all or nothing. Now, because of how out of alignment this world is and how bent it is towards humanism, there's a natural and constant drift that will always centralize self and cause us to move inward instead of outward. It's just part of the human condition. It is the fall. John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus makes a statement about the Scriptures and the interpretation of Scriptures that is so important. He put it this way, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about Me. So His statement is that you're going you're gonna to read the Bible, you're going to approach Christianity or whatever religion you approach, and you're going to look at it as these are tips and tricks and rules and morals and philosophies that I can now take and work for myself. I can take them, internalize them, and make this work for me. And then from that, I will bear the fruit of being a better, greater person. And what Jesus is saying, you think that this all is going to be internalized, and if you just figure it out, if you just have the right, uh, if you just have the right perspective, and if you just have the right uh, philosophy, 
in life, then you will make yourself great. And he's saying all this is not talking about you. It's talking about me. All this is meant to lead you to the source. The law was given to bring us to the end of ourselves. But the law was given because we asked for it. The Israelites said, whatever you do, just tell us what to do and let us have it. Let us be autonomous. Let us, give us the rules of the game and let us work it on our own with no link or dependency on God in heaven. That is religion's job from there on. We are typically religious-minded people who want to do everything we can to work ourselves in a place that we, our life looks like it doesn't need Jesus at all. In fact, growing up, those are the Christians I admire the most, the ones that didn't seem like they needed Jesus. And by all accounts, that is the worst place one could ever find themselves in. In fact, Jesus uses this opportunity of the Sermon on the Mount to rail against Pharisees and the self-righteous. If it was about being self-made and advancing yourself and being autonomous, Jesus would have held up the Pharisees as the greatest role models in history. He would have said, you need to be like these guys because they are sticking the landing, they're getting the ten from heaven, they're nailing it. But he called those guys a brood of vipers. Whitewashed tombs. He said, you're, you're clean on the outside, but you're filthy on the inside. The Beatitudes are not conditional statements. It's not conditionality. These are statements of fact. These are not if-then statements. If you do this, then you'll get that. The Beatitudes are because, therefore statements. Because this is the reality, therefore you are blessed. The the Beatitudes are not prescriptive, they are descriptive. He's, He's stating something matter of fact. He's not setting goals before us and then describing the types of people that we need to become in order to achieve the goals. What he's doing is he's describing the types of people who these goals have reached. They're not reaching the goals. The goals reach them. Just the simple fact that he is up on a mountain preaching this message, the question has to be answered, asked, who can ascend the mountain? Nobody. Clean hands, pure hearts. That's not me. That's not you. We could never go up, so Jesus came down. He encounters the leper because that's all of us. We have an incurable, fatal disease that is self-righteousness, that Jesus died for us to take that upon Himself so that we could, in fact, be righteous. This is the same idea of God gives grace to the humble. It's the same idea acted out in more elaborate uh, words and phrases in the Beatitudes. These are the people for whom the lights come on. These are not front-of-the-line types of people. These are not self-sufficient types of people. 
that the world celebrates. These are bought on the barrel, back of the line, desperate people, the types of people who realize they need Jesus and His grace more than anything else. And then, therefore, they run to receive it with their arms open wide. The truth is, if we really get down to it, the Beatitudes aren't even really about you and me. And this is the misdirection. This is the plot twist. If you read these right, you understand that Jesus is giving he's, these statements, these eight things that he lays out are autobiographical. Let me, let me paint the picture here. Who became poor so that we might become rich? Who turns our mourning into gladness? Who is gentle and humble in heart? He says that we should hunger and thirst for righteousness. Who took the cup of judgment so that we could taste righteousness? Who is the one person who is pure in heart? It says, blessed are the peacemakers. Who is the Prince of Peace? Who was persecuted for the sake of righteousness? This isn't a prescription of what we're trying to reach in our own human efforts. This is a description of who we are in Christ. This is who He is and who we are in Him. The Bible says that as He is, so are you. This is descriptive because it's describing Jesus. And it's also describing us because we're in Jesus. Now, we can't achieve these things in our own strength, but Jesus credits these things that are blessings to us. That's what the word Beatitudes means blessing, blessed. These are statements of fact that this is who you are and this is what you have, not because you've earned it or gotten there or deserved it, because this is who Jesus is, therefore this is what He freely gives you. The way that we read the Beatitudes should be more like this if we really want to get the most out of it. Because Jesus was poor in spirit, ours is the kingdom of heaven. Because Jesus mourned, we are comforted. Because Jesus is gentle, we shall inherit the earth. Because he, is, he, he hungered and thirsted for righteousness, we are satisfied. Because Jesus is merciful, we receive mercy. Because Jesus is pure in heart, we see God. Because Jesus is a peacemaker, we're called sons and daughters of God. Because Jesus was persecuted for the sake of righteousness, ours is the kingdom of heaven. Because Jesus was insulted, persecuted falsely, and had all kinds of evil set against him, we can rejoice and be glad because our reward in heaven is great. He has done for us what we can never do for ourselves. That's what we celebrate. Truth is, the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount in general are not rungs on a ladder to, uh, to grow, to change, to aspire, to become more. If, if the Sermon on the Mount is a to-do list, it's really bad news because we can't do this. Jesus says during this sermon just to make sure that we, we, we can't really falsely interpret what's being said. He knows that some of us are not going to be able to pick up on the cues and the clues, so he just says it directly. He says, okay, guys, here's the standard. 
be perfect. That's the crescendo. What does it take? Well, you go through, blessed are the poor in spirit, you've got to be poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers, you've got to be a peacemaker. Blessed are the pure in heart, you've got to be pure in heart. But then he just gets to, he gets to the conclusion. He says, be perfect. And I've heard people from the pulpits try to water that down and say, well, what he's meaning is give it the old college try. Do your best and God will do the rest. Be perfect cannot be misinterpreted because he tells you what he means by it. He says, be perfect as my Father is perfect. You you can't misinterpret that. What that means is be like God. Good luck, Godspeed. Get out there and get to it. This, he is taking something that we water down and he's repurifying it and bringing it back to the potent state where it belonged. He took the bar that we put on the ground and he's putting it up to the impossible standard that it's meant to be. You cannot. So if this is a to-do list, we're in trouble. But it's not. The Sermon on the Mount comes down to the good news that Jesus is for us what we can never be. He is perfect. One is good. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. I came, this is what he's describing, for a beautiful exchange. My life for yours. My obedience for your disobedience. My righteousness for your unrighteousness. My togetherness for your untogetherness. My my wholeness for your brokenness. I have come not just to die for you, but to die as you, so that you can say with all confidence, as he is, so am I. These very strategic verses are really, ultimately, about Jesus. It's not about you and me. Because he is these things for us. And because of that, we become these things in him. So here's the practical reality. This describes someone that the world is not going to celebrate. It's not, the, the world's not going to celebrate or hoist upon their shoulders like Rudy, uh, the type of people that the Beatitudes describes. But it does describe the type of person who lives a life in need, hungry for the grace of God for God to move in their heart and their lives. May we all grow in that hunger. May we all become more and more dependent on who God is working in and through us every day of our lives. If you can manage everything and if you're in control of everything, then at that moment you are not walking and living by faith. The the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, is a description of being pushed out of the nest. And the only way we're going to fly is if Jesus gives us wings. We need him that much. That is the only answer. That is the only hope. But the good news is it is promised to us and it is ours. You are in him and he is in you. 
and he's developing within you because of that the types of people he needs us to be to show this world how much he loves them.